Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game. With every conversation, we hope to inspire as many as possible to keep on Dungeon Mastering. I'm one of your hosts, DM Neil, aka Jote Moniac, and today, DM Mitch and I sit down with It's Friday to talk about the idea and a lot of ins and outs of becoming a potentially becoming a pro GM and some of the ways to do that. It's a great episode full of tons of advice and rather than listen to me talk anymore here, you can listen to me talk more over there when we head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. So today, for the meat of the episode, we have another special guest. And today we have Is Friday, and one of the absolute best people on Twitter. If you are not following them, you are not doing yourself a service because they're giving amazing advice on making money as one of the top-ranked pro GMs out there through podcasts, newsletters. I'm maybe regular mail letters i don't know we'll we'll find out soon enough but friday thank you for coming on thanks for having me uh i'm happy to be here um i haven't been sending out handwritten letters but i suppose you know maybe if i get an assistant at some point maybe i will have them do that or something like that but i <laughs> i don't have an assistant yet and it wouldn't be very efficient for me to to handwrite some newsletters assistant to the regional Pro GM. <laughs> yes. It, it's possible that people may only be receiving them. I say this as one of the podcasts we've recently found out there, there are still millions of AOL subscribers. So oh, if, if you, there may be an really? untapped market of people that are only receiving letters. Interesting. I wonder what their open rate is like. <laughs> I, I want to know so much. I don't, yeah. I, I close that door in my mind so that I don't fall deep within that rabbit hole, <laughs> likely becoming an AOL member myself. So we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, skip, we'll skip that. So Friday, uh, for those of uh, us who um, maybe aren't, as Neil said, uh, following you on Twitter, um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, what is it that you do? Maybe some uh, the things that you uh, really love in life. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I am a game writer, uh, designer and i am kind of a project manager as well as a marketer a copywriter and then my my actual job is being a pro gm so i'm a full-time pro gm <laughs> that's how i uh, pay my bills uh, and everything else is kind of like my own business hobby uh, i suppose everything falls under my llc but yeah the the pro gming is really what brings the money in uh for now and it's like my my day job so yeah that's such an awesome sentence. <laughs> That's the uh, opposite I, I, of I, most I, people's I, sentence, right? Right, Neil? Yes. Like, my actual <laughs> yeah. job is this. <laughs> yeah, that's very common in tabletop, actually. That's one of the problems with the tabletop industry that I seek to address for as many people as possible. It's uh, one of my platform's goals to get as many people to a living wage as possible that want to work within tabletop. That's awesome. Uh, and part of that is really just providing a lot of people enough stability to be able to pursue uh, hobbies that they would like to do uh, within the mm. tabletop industry, whether it be game writing or game design. A lot of the time, people feel like they are restricted by their trying to pay their bills in other ways or their mortgage or supporting their family, rightfully so, because uh, it is you know tough times in the economy, uh, wherever you might be in the world. 
Uh, it feels like everywhere is uh, getting more expensive. And I'm not necessarily saying that you should dedicate yourself to work or only dream of labor. But for a lot of people, if you could make money running, you know, D&D games or whatever have you, like Project Black Flag, then you probably would like to. And then you can use that money for either uh, peace of mind. Uh, you can help pay off some debt. I know a lot of people who are in less fortunate situations who are uh, marginalized uh, individuals, whether they be on uh, disability or are uh, otherwise unable to seek a, a workplace um, outside of their home. So if someone is uh, stuck at only a remote location, uh, they can find that uh, being a pro GM is actually a very good option for them uh, if they can kind of stomach all the other business aspects of it, because there is definitely a business aspect to it. It's not for everyone, but I would say that if you're a pretty good GM and you've run 100 to 200 games, then I think that you're probably qualified. I say probably because I know plenty of pro GMs that probably shouldn't be pro GMs. But, you know, it's a good shot that if you're just a nice person uh, and you're also a decent GM and you're a decent host, uh, you can probably make at least some money to help ease some of the stress that you might be feeling. Uh, in these uh, tough economic times. There are so many follow-up questions, but the one I will say is you mentioned Project Black Flag, which I think leads really well into our second interview question, and that is, is there anything that you're currently working on? And the caveat that we always get to put is that you can tell us about. Well, sure. I, I didn't NDA myself for my own project, so... Um, Great choice. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, the only NDAs that I have to abide by are in relation to anything involving like the Project Black Flag playtest. At the time of this recording, the second playtest packet for Project Black Flag has dropped, uh, and they will continue to drop. My team and me, we get them uh, a couple weeks, sometimes sooner than that, uh, in order to sort of start designing our book to fit within the... Uh, realm of possibility or the same time window as releasing at the same time as the new core, the new core books that uh, Cobalt Press is releasing for Project Black Flag. For us, we are going to Kickstarter April 3rd. And if you go to vineyardrpg.com, regardless of when uh, you listen to this episode, it'll take you either to our backer kit page or our Kickstarter if it's in progress and you can kind of check it out. The Vineyard RPG is a setting and campaign book focused on what corporate greed looks like in a fantasy world. The Vineyard is an undead criminal organization which expands its influence through monetary debts, blackmail secrets, and political manipulation. Our book features nine compelling villain dossiers outfitted with a biography, plot hooks, lair, stat block, all of which you can integrate into over 20 locations. You can resist the undead uh, corporate greed by fighting their influence or join them by signing a contract to expand your power for a price. You can trade your darkest secrets for boons from their majesty, and you can unlock your dreams and nightmares alike. So we have a massive team. We have over 20 uh, S-tier industry pros. I'm very proud of the team uh, that we have been able to bring together. And they have submitted some of the best art and the best writing that I've ever seen in my life in any tabletop game. Um, and I'm very excited for people to see it. We will have a preview adventure on the Kickstarter page the day that we launch, April 3rd, for everybody to check out. I got to say, you kind of had me at undead corporate greed. <laughs> that will be in for sure. <laughs> the and the I, natural I, evolution yeah. of yeah. America. <laughs> and I've seen it. Okay. 
this is a really deep cut and it may be too close to my own personal friend group, but I'm going to say it and we'll go from there. So Warhammer 40,000, the theory is that the emperor is still alive on a throne of souls. My in-world assumption is that Sam Walden is also doing the same thing um, and just is still living on a a throne of souls. That's how Walmart (laughs) is still taking over the world. So I'll plant that seed for whoever wants that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a pretty good plot hook for like a modern RPG, I would think. Um, If you wanted to resist the man, the man being Walmart. um, (laughs) And I think that that might actually fit into like maybe like a a kids on bikes uh, campaign or something like that. Or and then you already have then you already have the structure of bosses, the literal bosses that you have to go through to complete the quest. Yeah, yeah. This is too much. I'm going to write it all down. Oh, no. <laughs> the, um, yeah, the uh, lieutenants that we have. So we have the big boss, and then we have the lieutenants available for the uh, table to interact with. Um, we have sort of actionable plot hooks that people can get seated in early on. And there's lieutenants who started working for the vineyard because they owed a debt, and then some who are willing, like, sort of embracing the entire lawful evil aspect of it. The way that our contracts work is, I think, very interesting, and I don't want to talk too much about uh, the book itself. I mean, you can find out more information at vineyardrpg.com. But uh, our contracts are being developed by uh, Legal Kimchi, if you're familiar with that YouTuber. Um, He's one of our writers and sort of developed with us. And I remember uh, discussing these ideas with with Kimchi, and uh, when I was describing, like, hey... I have this great idea about how evil this would be. And he was like, yeah, that's like a less evil version of De Beers um, or a less evil version of this other corporation that I know about because he works in uh, intellectual property in the real world um, as an attorney. So he's very familiar with uh, sort of how things are structured and um, how to provide these contracts. So we're going to have boilerplate contracts and then we're also going to have uh, story-oriented contracts for people to enjoy and uh, introduced to their players and used as a plot point. Fantastic. Well, we like to have a surprise question for all of our guests when they come on. So we've got one for you today. Uh, So Friday, the surprise question is, if you, Friday, were a character in an RPG campaign, what would your weapon of choice be and why? Hmm. I did Filipino knife fighting for a while, so I would imagine uh-huh. that that would be a good option yeah. for me. Um, but I also really like the idea of like a uh, a warhammer um, because <laughs> I am good at swinging a baseball bat uh, from growing up yeah. in America. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so nice. I mean, you. I mean, you could switch it up every now and then, right? Those are your, those are yeah. your uh, your two when you need to uh, really send a message. Out comes the warhammer. When yeah. you want to be more subtle, <laughs> you've got the knives. I love it. Thanks for answering yeah. that surprise question. So we've touched on the main topic a little bit, and it's such a robust topic. I, I almost don't know where to start, um, but a conversation we were having kind of just before we hit record. Uh, good, I think a good place to start is to start. What well, now? It sounds dumb because now I'm going to say a good place to start is start playing. If that's not ad copy that they use, it definitely should be. But it's probably one of the most forefront platforms in terms of pro GMing, in terms of its inclusivity, its openness 
to the list of just general games that it has already set up uh, and just kind of how well known it is. So I think that's probably a good place to start is what what are some key pieces of info about start playing both as a company and a platform? Well, I would start at the beginning and what I know of Devin and his partner, Nate, um, who they met up and they had this idea that they wanted to work on back in 2020. uh, And they sort of it was basically their invention from Devin's point of view. He was a pro GM in the San Francisco area. And Nate was a uh, basically an engineer, um, a developer that wanted to resolve this problem. And the problem was I can't find a GM, especially in COVID. So they went around and they made these connections. And I don't know anyone who can really compare, at least in that space, with Devin and marketing. Fantastic marketer. And uh, the ability for him to like meet people and just be very earnest. And he feels to me, as you know, my experience with uh, him and Nate just being on the platform, wonderful leader. The safety team is really incredible for GMs and players alike. Any sort of claims of abuse or any problems are investigated really thoroughly. And they do their best to be able to uh, sort of make this unwieldy platform, not a cesspit. And it's they do a really good job. You might have varying results if you go like hang out in the Discord too long or whatever. But I mean, uh, for the most part, startplaying.games is a really great platform. And and not to say anything uh, negative about them. They're a very small company. Um, they work really hard. I love working with them. And uh, yeah, I would say that in general, it is the best place to find a game to play or to run a game as a GM. One of the things that they handle for you is they will handle the money. So you don't actually have to have those sort of awkward conversations with people like, hey, PayPal me this or whatever. You can just stick to the policy. You have like 24 hours before a game where people get kind of get locked in and they've reserved their seat. And then it'll run their card anyway. Um, and if it doesn't work, then start playing games deals with them. Like they talk to start playing games to be able to resolve their card issues and things like that. And taking that sort of thing out of the equation for the personal relationship you're trying to build with your players is a huge uh, bonus. It's a huge benefit of the platform. And not only that, but they do advertise outside of their website to bring people to their website. And once they bring people to their website, as long as you've done your due diligence to be able to understand the advertising on the platform and how their marketplace works, then you can fill games and uh, you can start earning a living wage there. I had mentioned previously that I have some experience because, I mean, I guess the long story short, I mean, people could eventually find this out and I don't have a problem discussing it, but I got laid off a year ago and it is what it is. And the idea of potentially adding pro GMing to that living wage, because right now my wife is doing fantastic. And just generally speaking, she loves her job. I explained, no, you know, not everyone does that. And she she was surprised to find out that that was true. Most people don't enjoy their day-to-day job, but she does. So the idea of adding that, and I think the way to frame it is that living wage, not the idea of I'm not, maybe I'm not going to become the wealthiest person in the world, but then my mental and possibly physical health is going to go higher because now I'm not going to a place that is slowly sucking my soul out. And instead it's something that I genuinely already enjoyed to do. And one of the things is because there are some stigmas around it and I think we'll probably get into that conversation, but at the end of the day, there are people willing to pay for this service and people that are willing to provide the service and start playing in other, other sites like it are just connecting those two people. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of uh, things to be said about providing this service to people who are marginalized, because a lot of the time, if you're a marginalized individual where you you belong to the queer community or you're uh, BIPOC or you are disabled or anything like that, um, or you're neurodivergent, it's, it's very difficult to find people that you're going to enjoy playing with. So allowing uh, these players to find GMs who are like them or who are very inclusive for whatever their identity might be or their, uh, you know, their situation or their schedule. Let's say that's the biggest problem for everybody is scheduling, right? Finding a game that works for them remotely on a schedule that's going to work for them. That's really what it's providing. It's providing both the convenience and the safety uh, at being able to find people that you're going to enjoy playing with and not just resorting to like showing up to the hobby shop and then like, okay, well, I don't necessarily want to play because I don't feel good about like I can't get sick. Or uh, if you're going to the hobby shop and then you just have one sort of demographic, if you live in an area which doesn't have more uh, people that you think that you'd enjoy playing games with. Yeah, scheduling is the the bane of all GMs <laughs> and players out there. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Um, so uh, Friday, just for our minds of what this looks like for you as a professional GM, are the mass majority of games that you run, they are over something like Zoom or like some sort of video chat uh, service. Do you do any GMing like in person? What does that look like for you? So a vast majority of my games are online uh, through my Discord server. I have a community there. I think we're almost up to 400 people right now. I don't run games for 400 people, but like there's pro GMs who join my community who are interested in like chatting with other pro GMs and improving their business, so on and so forth. And then like, you know, friends, people I've worked with, so on and so forth. But for me, it's normally video chat in the Discord. Uh, We have a boosted server, so it's like a little higher quality. And I run my games right now through Foundry VTT. I'm open to other VTTs. No one has sponsored me, so... (laughs) I mean, you know, I, I don't I don't think it would be worth their money to sponsor me anyway, but uh, it's not like I'm going to um, not at this point. Anyway, I'm not I'm not uh, I don't have enough influence. That being said, when I when I do say stuff like people try what I tell them is a good product. So I, I do I do, I have realized that I have to be kind of careful about which products that I endorse, I should say. And especially because uh, at certain points, uh, people have attempted to uh, leverage my uh influence without my permission <laughs> and that has happened to me now so yeah i'm i'm pretty careful about who i endorse but yeah foundry vtt and i i do like discord uh for running my games i think zoom's good too uh i just don't prefer it um yeah they so the approach that i had in the in the few games that i had gone through was the same thing you know added to a discord then you're already in that community and you can see more people joining that community and w- the there's a lot of interesting pieces that I'm already picking out. One is the making a community where GMs can talk to other GMs because that's you know that's one of the biggest things about this show is a lot of people don't have anyone they can talk to about running their games because the only people that they know that enjoy their games are their players and yeah. it's, that's not the conversation that you get to have really because you may you know show too many of your cards. The other thing I had for whatever reason, hadn't quite thought of was the idea of remote games and being able to play them and find these pro GMs is the like the socioeconomic scale that gets involved. Because if I live in a rural community, my options are very limited. It couldn't, you know, it it could be that everyone I go to at the game store looks exactly like me. 
but I don't like them. And that's fine. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. That's just a reality is mm-hmm. that there, there's such a limited number of tables that I could then have access to. And those tables don't work for me. But now I can go online. Or like you said, what if I pull graveyard all the time? Yeah. No, nobody wants. I mean, well, you know, gamers notoriously, we could probably, we, as a collective <laughs> unit, we could probably pull that off. But the idea that I could then just, is it someone that lives in the UK who's consistently mm-hmm. running games at a schedule that works for me? I get done with my graveyard shift. I log in and I just start playing. It's it's interesting the the benefits that are there. And again, we're I don't think anyone on this on this podcast is claiming that this is for everyone on either side of that screen. But th- there are so many people that it can be for that just promoting the idea and just the overall structure, I think is a really, really good thing. Yeah, it definitely, uh, that is 100% true. If you work graveyard, you're probably going to end up with a bunch of Australians um, or a bunch of uh, Europeans in your game. I know that's what happens in my games when I uh, run them super late. Like I have a 930 Pacific game and it's full of, you know, Australians and uh, Europeans. But yeah, it, it's it's great uh, for a good number of reasons. And especially if you want to run games during the day. You'll uh, find that some people uh, actually who work at home, who are working remotely, they will pretend to be at work while they play TMD with you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I mean, like, I'm not saying you should if you're at home and you're listening to this and you work from home. But I mean, I, you could. You could, though. So a piece of advice that I have definitely not used on a personal basis, wink, wink, uh, is that when you need to put something like that in your calendar, it's super fun to just put board meeting because <laughs> you're playing board games at your lunch on a regular basis. Yeah. So I'll just, uh, just, just. No, that's cute. Ahead. I love it. Yeah. I just imagine how all these people just putting in like a four hour block that says board meeting. No, sorry. I'm bi- I'm very busy. Yeah, I, I uh, honestly, I think it's really funny when my players tell me like their excuses if they do play with me during a daytime game. You know, so some some people have like stuff blocked off and they literally put it in their calendar as though that they are uh, they have set times that they do go to meetings and their meeting is just D and D. Or uh, I have players who set it out in their calendar as uh, mental health or therapy or something like that. I'm not a therapist. There are some DMs who are therapists who practice and like who use that sort of therapeutic play. Um, I am not, but I mean, like, I'm not saying that they're bad people for lying. I'm just glad that they're playing with me, you know, so I'm not complaining. I'm sure that does open up for you as when you're GMing those games. I'm sure that has led to some challenges. I imagine that there have been times where you have been running games for a number of people and whether it's somebody is actually supposed to be at work and in the middle of the game, it's like, oh, I actually have to hop off for like an hour or or even if somebody is planning on playing and that's their their amount of time but then they have to jump off is there any advice you have for for gms out there who when that kind of thing might happen what do you do with that kind of a challenge um i would say and i've had this question uh pretty frequently in my uh in my patreon uh discord so i think for the most part, if you were looking at targeting an audience that is going to be playing during U.S. daytime and you were targeting Americans who are playing while they're at work, I think probably it's better to just shoot for like um, an hour and a half or two hour games that are really focused. And uh, you get in, get out, like you play the entire like time and then you get out and like you cut table talk and you cut everything else. And when you arrive, you just play. And then if people want to show up early to hang out, they can but I, that's what I would recommend. 
I kind of run the opposite sort of uh, game because I run in the evenings US um, for the most part, afternoon and evenings uh, in which people show up and I have like a, uh, a gossip time from like 20 to 60 minutes as average now. I started it just because I was uh, trying to sort of increase the familiarity with uh, between players and like to sort of bond more, you know, digitally, because that can be kind of difficult, even over video. Um, but what it ended up bloating out into, like I started with uh, just talking about me being on dating apps again, because I was like newly, newly single after, uh, you know, being married for so long. And I was like, just talking about like me being on dating apps and look at what this weird thing that happened on this dating app. <laughs> so I'm sure a lot of your listeners have experience with. And then everybody like when I started sharing more about myself, then more people started sharing so it really depends on everybody's comfortability, like, and that's sort of what works for me. Not every business plan works for everybody. Uh, some people are more drawn to the, they show up, they play, and then they leave, and it's completely transactional. Uh, and that's okay, but yeah. Yeah, that is one of the, the key benefits on its base level. And it's not the funnest thing to talk about, but the idea that every person has paid some amount of money to to be there at the end of the day, that that is a literal investment. So then typically the mental investment kind of comes along with it. Kind of to move into another thing that's come up a few times because I think it is possibly one of the most underlooked and most important pieces is that at the end of the day, you are kind of, if not completely, turning yourself into a business entity to really get this going to be kind of consistent. So I did not set that up well as a question, um, but the idea of how does a person start broaching the idea of becoming more of that business entity? Because you are trying to sell you, sell yourself running games to attract more players. I think the most important thing for you to be as a professional GM, especially when you're starting out, is being professional and consistent. And if you're professional and consistent, then a lot of the other problems just don't exist because... You have to be, unfortunately, in the world of freelancing, uh, shout out to my freelancers out there, you have to be incredibly consistent because your reputation matters a lot. So if you don't show up for games, you cancel too frequently or like something like you're not on it, you know, you're not on it on on the ball when you're running games, people will go elsewhere. And that's one of the things that really separates pro jamming from a casual environment, which can hurt your feelings. But at the same time, it's just business. So uh, I have games still that fall apart. Uh, I just had some games fall apart like this past week. And I know part of that is because, uh, you know, I haven't perhaps been running as good at games or something. Uh, but, you know, that's okay. Because when, when push comes to shove, like people, if they have a choice and something comes up in their life, they can schedule around their game or they can keep your game. And a lot of the time, the sort of measure of success that I would say for most professional GMs is when people leave your game, do they say that they want to come back? Do they say that they want to try a game at a different time and place? And it's also good for you to keep in mind as a pro GM, like you are the consistency for the game that they want to play. And a lot of people who are seeking out these uh, remote games don't have that consistency in their life. So a lot of the time they will only be able to play for like three to five weeks or something, or sometimes even less before their schedule changes. And then they, you have to rotate them out and then like bring somebody new in and stuff like that. So um, as much as possible, like you, you, after a while, you get sort of used to that. It can really hurt at first, um, but you get a little bit more used to it. And that is not to say that you enjoy the process less. 
unless you're being overworked. If you take on too much work, then that's a totally different conversation. But yeah. The the other thing I was thinking, because I, I feel like you're alluding it to uh, to it a little bit, is the, the idea between a campaign versus a one-shot, mm-hmm. which I feel like we're very different approaches potentially, or both short and long-term, obviously. Um, so can you kind of ta- speak to the difference between setting up a, a campaign that you would run consistently online versus a, a one-shot? Yeah, so a one-shot, you're going to have a very tight sort of turnaround for players. A lot of the time, uh, I, I need to talk about like the ecosystem first so that you understand like the player behavior. Because one of the most important things to understand as a professional DM is what is the marketplace? What is the uh, the client behavior? What is like the buyer behavior in this marketplace? And most people join a game one week out. So it's, fi- or I should say 50% join one week out and 50% join the day of that a game is going to be run. People do not join a game if there's nobody at the table already. And they'll see X of six seats or whatever when they see your advertisement. And it's very important that you try to get your initial two to four players before that final day comes up. And if you do that through either your community or through outreach, if you can, or through people that you know want to play, or you utilize something like a seat filler, which is something that a lot of pro GMs do, um, then that is going to help you get to where you need to go. Now, briefly, a seat filler is like a friend that you have, that you trust, that's going to be fun at the table. They get a free game. They help you manage the newbies. They help you manage like run, running your game well. They interact with people. They create a better experience. So it's really like part of the package of being in a pro game. It's like you know that at least one of these players is going to be awesome. And they're really improving the experience for the rest of the players. Um, I would say the difference between running a one-shot in a campaign uh, is that last time we got any data from Devin uh, about that is that it was 75% of the players that sign up for games on Start Playing Games are campaign players. Uh, The bookings, I should say. So the bookings is 75% campaign, 25% one-shot. So your market is much smaller. And if you're trying to run a game other than the Big Dragon game, it can be pretty difficult. And I believe right now, last time we checked on data, uh, Devin shared that it was 70-30, big dragon game, 30% everybody else. So it really depends on like what your model is and how you would like to reach your audience. Um, it can seem very intimidating to try to run something other than the big dragon game, but um, you can do it in limited quantities, I think, um, especially if you double down on your marketing, you allow your uh, copywriting, uh, which is the uh, verbiage in your title, Um, You allow your uh, thumbnail to tell the story of what the game is um, and you create a good advertisement so you can distill the process down to as simplistic as possible for someone to understand what the experience is. Because when people go and they click on an advertisement, they're not looking for the lore dump that you provide them as a handout. They're looking for or thinking about what is this experience going to be like? So they're thinking about like, when I sign up for this game, is it going to be funny? Is this going to be scary? Is this going to be very mechanically heavy? You need to be able to explain that in your advertisement. But yeah, I have a uh, I have an article written about that, which kind of breaks that down. Uh, amongst other things, I have a bunch of other articles about pro GMing. But yeah, it's important that you sort of tighten that up because sometimes it can take a few weeks for your game to fill. And then once you have your group together, you run the best session zero that you can in order to retain those players. 
and then you just try and keep that table together as long as possible, at least the core group. You might have one or two rotating seats. That's pretty normal. It's like the sixth seat is always like rotating or the last seat in your campaign. And then the last thing I'll say about like one shots to campaigns, some people naturally think about one shots as an advertisement for campaigns, but that's not the behavior of the clients that we found on Start Playing Games. One shot players are one shot players, campaign players are campaign players. So when you put out a one shot and you attract an audience, those people normally do not have a consistent enough schedule in order to play consistently in a campaign. So it might seem like a good idea. However, it's not actually in actuality the best idea. Most campaign players as well are not going to go over to the other side of the fence on the one shot. They would much rather show up and then in their first session decide whether or not they want to stick around rather than trying a one shot that is unrelated to the game that they want to play. Because every campaign player is looking for that magnum opus campaign that they can just join and like, I'm going to be playing with my friends for three years, which doesn't happen very often. But I will say that I have had some tables uh, since I started uh, about a year ago that have been together for a year. So uh, it just it just depends on like uh, if you find that really just that good fit or not. First off, most of that, it, the information provided was not difficult. It's just so much of it felt kind of counterintuitive to the way I would have thought. Because as you were describing the percentages, my head was definitely going to say, okay, 70% are totally one shots. No, those are campaign players. <laughs> and it just kind of shocked me because that wouldn't have been my assumption. My assumption would have been kind of the people that don't necessarily have the time or, you know, let's say it's my players and we're only meeting monthly. So they kind of want to supplement their TTRPG experience by getting some additional games in on our off weeks. Uh, but the idea, but it also starts to make sense because of that, you know, again, we're at the end of it, it's still a monetary transaction, but having a game where every Thursday, at six, well, <laughs> apparently every time Critical rolls on was immediately where my head went, we're going to play. Yeah. And it'll be every week in the idea that, you know, my, my table is probably only going to see 12 sessions within a year. But again, with this transaction, we could easily see 52 for the campaign. And, you know, the idea like, well, the campaign may not need to run as long because, hey, we're all actually showing up and <laughs> actually going through the campaign and actually doing stories yeah like i said none, the information isn't necessarily hard but i think there are a lot of counterintuitive pieces that a person needs to kind of work through um to really get it going yeah absolutely a uh, shout out to joe for my thursday night campaign who ran into sam regal while wearing his critical role <laughs> sweatshirt uh who plays with me thursday nights uh who talked to sam regal about our own critical role game on thursday nights <laughs> pretty recently um but yeah yeah, he asked he asked Sam if they could move theirs because it's really conflicting. So. Yeah. Do you find that since your players are like they are paying for the game to happen, do you find that the commitment level is more there in general with pro GMing? Yeah, I would say so. Definitely. Uh, I think that there's a couple of phenomena that I did want to mention briefly and not to dissuade anyone, but a lot of GMs who come into the space for their first time they're they're not quite, they have a lot of imposter syndrome, which I totally understand. And I, um, you know, I struggle with that myself a lot of the time. Um, they come in with imposter syndrome and they're like, I'm not going to charge very much. I will charge five to $15 a seat or whatever, which is below the median. The median price right now and start playing games last time that we received data from this was $19. 
So that's the median price. So I don't think anybody should be starting below the median, in my opinion. If you have the call to be able to uh, try and run games professionally and you're putting stuff out there, you need to start at $20 a seat, in my opinion. Because what that's going to do is it's going to cut out all of the people who are less interested in being serious about it or who are going to uh, disrespect your time. What we have found in the ProGM community is that people who pay less actually respect you less. So... Uh, they will come in and they will be rude and they will be more demanding and they will be like, there's just all of these additional things. It's kind of this odd like system that you have to charge a little bit more in order to have people like sort of take you seriously. And um, you have to slam your flag into the ground and like declare, draw a line in the sand. My professional business is worth at least this much for inexperience. Um, because otherwise people will kind of see that and internally signal, I suppose, that it's not necessarily worth their time and it's not a big deal uh, if they go in and then they show their, you know, that they just are rude or whatever. And and for those who are unfamiliar, but they're like listening to you talk and like are thinking about this, when you say $20 a seat, or is that typically... Like $20 a seat per hour, is does that change around depending on the GM or the game? What does that look like? So price is very individual depending on the business. So some people like to price themselves higher because of uh, the virtual tabletop they're using or some of the assets or kind of the full experience. Like, for instance, I use animated maps a lot of the time on Foundry. And then I also provide a full music and audio suite. Sometimes I provide sound effects too. If I think something is, if I can't do it with yeah, my yeah. voice, <laughs> I, I try to find sound effects for it. And sort of like that whole uh, experience, I do charge way above the median. Uh, but I sort of work my way up to there. Most pro GMs uh, who sort of get that experience, uh, they want to, they want to start at probably the median price in order to build up reviews. Verified reviews are very important for the customer experience to be able to um, sort of be assured that this experience is going to be good for the consumer. So just like we look at like reviews for companies or a product or anything, we're going to look at reviews to make sure that this this person has been playing with them for 10 sessions and they say this about them and this has been their experience. People really value those pretty highly. And if you're looking to establish yourself, I always recommend people like cut a minute long clip. They just put the, they just put the link in their GM profile and they say, hey, watch me GM. And then they have this example of someone that is GMing and they can decide right there, do I like this GM or do I think this would be fun? And if they don't, then they don't join and then quit right away. They join and they're like, yeah, this was fun because they know what they're going to get. So reducing the amount of, and this is sort of a sales conversation now, reducing the amount of barriers and misunderstandings between you and the players is incredibly important to retain the players that you want, which is why I build my profile and all of my games to sort of emphasize my style, what I bring to the table, um, my sort of culture and rules. And I generally don't get a lot of people who come in and are disrespectful uh, or come in and don't understand what it is that I'm trying to do. Sometimes people come in and they really enjoy the game, but they can't stick around. So then they come back a couple months later, they try a different game. So it just, it's all about like providing as much information as possible in as concise a way that's not going to be overburdened because it's like two different conversations, like your GM profile, which has like 
your information. You have the game advertisement, which has like stuff about the game to get them excited to join the campaign. Not a full lore dump, but just enough to get them excited to join the game because they think it's the game for them. And then you have like a general player profile that you need to pay attention to. I attract these types of players and these are the players that I best uh, maintain tables for. For me, I attract a lot of queers and I did not anticipate that, but because I put my identity out there in my profile and that's how I sort of organize everything, I attracted a high amount of queers and queer friendly people. So most of my community that plays with me is, you know, queers and I'm, it's a great experience for me, let me tell you, uh, rather than playing with uh, some people who are not queer friendly. One thing, one thing you mentioned is like a lot of gems who start doing this, that they have strong imposter syndrome. And I'm just thinking like even putting myself in that place of, uh, I'm going to start professionally GMing. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to try and run some games and make some extra money and, and put on a great game for people. One of the worries I would have, I've been, I've been DMing for a good long time now, but I'm so story focused. Rules are not the thing that I focus a lot of time on. There's still tons of times where I, I am DMing and I'm not familiar with the exact rule as written. And there are times as a, as a DM, as a GM, I say to the players like, Hey, I want, I want you guys to, you know, fill me in on what the rule is on that. Since you're playing your character, please know your character's rules and such. But if I were to step into that, scenario i know that i'd have a little bit of worry of oh gosh but i don't i don't know all the rules and i know you were talking a little bit about you know putting putting out and presenting here is my my game master style but yeah if i imagine there are other gms and dms who are listening right now and having that same thought of yeah but i don't think that i know the rules enough what would you say? Like, it, honestly, would you say, well, start studying up on the rules more? Like, what would your advice be? So I would say that if you are below 100 or 200 games, if you're not in that range already, you're not ready to be a pro GM. And that's my honest belief. Some people can learn faster than that. But I think that you really need a very solid foundation, not necessarily of any one system, but you need a solid foundation of dealing with people, being able to adjudicate, being able to be a good host and being able to just tell a story and knowing what you do as a storyteller and whether or not that's the best thing for the type of game that you're trying to run. So once you have that figured out and you know more about yourself, then you can move on to pro GMing, in my opinion. I think that uh, a lot of people have those concerns, though, especially about rules. Um, and one of the things that I put in my session zero is like, hey, I'm pretty loose with the rules like you are, Mitch. And I, um, I am cool with narrative over rules and i put that in my initial like conversation that i have with these players that are joining my campaign and i allow myself to be corrected on rule rules as written if we're playing a new game or we're playing a different type of game i cannot keep up with the uh sixty thousand abilities yeah. and spells yep. i just can't and sometimes i make mistakes i made a mistake pretty recently where i accidentally I miss I misread or I didn't read uh, a spell properly and I and I killed the character. I came to find that out later on and I'm like, okay, well, we're going to Uno reverse this and how would you like to adjudicate this? Because yeah. that's a very poor experience for a player to have that happen. And that's way less jarring to do that rather than just like to be this ironclad 
you know, yep. DM gladiator <laughs> never that's wrong. never going <laughs> to be wrong. Yeah, that's that's impossible to maintain, first of all. Um, and I would have some worries about your personality. But um, yeah, I think uh, just being open to criticism is very important as well. And uh, feedback, I should say. I solicit feedback from the players all the time through Stars and Wishes, where people tell me like, hey, here's what I liked. And then if they have any sort of uh, wish for me, like they want something to be put into the game, they can send that to me. But I'm very clear that I am okay with like uh, rule inquiries. I'm not okay with people telling me how to run the game. Because, well, I'm in a privileged position in my case, like where I don't need any one player. Uh, My games fill pretty quickly. So I'm not too worried about that. Um, I'm really established. But I think new GMs can be intimidated and they're they're like very, uh, I guess, (sighs) precious about their players and losing one or two. Every time, I will just say this from my personal experience, every time I've hesitated to kick someone, I have regretted it. Mm. So if someone gives me a bad vibe or like, I just don't think I'm going to have fun playing with this person, I've regretted it every single time. Yeah. You need to maintain the vibe at your table and like what makes it fun for you to run the game also to prevent you from dreading showing up to the game. You want to show up to work and enjoy it, right? If you are have a table filled with people that you're just not vibing with, then you just got to let them know, hey, um, you know, not vibing with the table or you can tell them, hey, you don't have to tell them that at first, but you could just tell them, I need to wrap up this campaign. I'm sorry, but we have like two weeks else. We'll close out the storylines we've got. And then you move on. I'm not the right GM for you. Anytime I turn anybody away and it's not like some egregious offense or whatever, I just tell them that, um, hey, I'm not the right GM for you. And that's the truth. I'm not lying to them, but it it makes it way less confrontational that way. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think you've really hit on so many big pieces about becoming that pro GM. And, you know, I don't, I don't want, my thought is I don't want anyone to take away your statement around the number of sessions run to be any form of gatekeeping. The second you get behind the screen, and I know we're all agreeing, I'm just repeating this out loud. The second you're behind the screen, you're a DM, you're a GM. That doesn't mean you're a pro GM. And the uh, the biggest reason for doing that many sessions is about figuring out who you are as someone that runs the game, because then then you're more resolute in those aspects of who, again, who you are as a person running so that you're more confident. And like you said, I'm not going to lie to the person. I'm not the GM for everybody. That's a hundred percent always going to be true. Some days I don't feel like I'm the right GM for the people that are at my home <laughs> group. Um, yeah. It's, it's just how, it, and that's okay because it ultimately you're trying to be the exact GM you're supposed to be and find the players that fit best with that. Um, not, not necessarily the other way around, which I feel like is probably what I intuitively would want to do starting out as a pro GM. And I feel like a lot of people would do is to cater too much and give up too much of who they are as a GM to placate in some ways to the groups that they have rather than setting themselves up again as no, this is my style. And then in turn, I'm going to attract those players to my tables because I am this kind of GM and I will run this kind of table. And there are people out there that want. Them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very important to protect your peace. Like you need to feel good about coming to work because then you're going to be able to give your best GMing when you are feeling good about the game that you're running. You're feeling good about the people that you're playing with and uh, you're not going to enjoy doing it it's going to suck it the so it's going to suck all the soul out of it essentially um if 
you are just running for people you don't enjoy playing with. And that's the hard truth. You might need to like spend some time figuring out like, how do I change my advertising copy to reflect the type of player that I want? How do I change my profile, my GM profile and stuff? How do I sort of make it a welcoming and inclusive space for the player that I want to play with? How do I do that? You know, you, you have to figure those things out. And that's just through communicating more and being uh, and maybe tightening up the, the way that you are doing your writing um, and presenting and then having these conversations with your players and just being a good host. To be quite honest, most uh, pro GMs on Start Playing Games are not professional voice actors. They're just like normal people. Like uh, when I well, I, I should I say that before I just quote this, uh, my G- first GM on Start Playing Games was uh, a voice coach. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but so I, I connected with Katie and like, I think it was like two years ago now. Um, and then we ran through an entire Tyranny of Dragons campaign. It was like a year and a half campaign for us. And uh, one of the things that really kept me coming back was not necessarily like, she was okay at like doing character voices. She was okay at combat um, and sometimes would connect with me to ask me for advice on developing combat more. She was an amazing host. So I played with Katie over any other GM on the website because I was more interested in like having that good experience with a GM that I enjoyed playing with more than like the performance of it, more than like anything else. So that can change depending on like what people's preferences are. But I think being a good host is such a key part of it. And I'm sorry if I just called you okay, Katie, uh, Katie you're great at everything. But I just <laughs> wanted to emphasize like, you know, it's it's not like... There's not like this barrier between the pro GMs who are making a living wage on start playing games and those who are just starting. It's really just like, have you built up your business to have a little bit more of credibility through reviews? Have you built up your clientele? Have you built up your community in a, in a Discord server? Um, and that just takes time. Yeah, so I, I want to ask you a little bit about what what we've kind of started to dive into and yeah, I'd real I think I'd really love to hear just your real honest opinion and your thoughts uh for yourself on this, but obviously there are GMs, there are DMs out there who they're listening to this and they're going, "This sounds awesome. I get paid to do something that I love." Obviously there is and you've talked a little bit about just even like the, you know, having to work on the scheduling and things like there are elements of this that are very much work. And I'm sure that you've had times that you've been running a game and it has felt much more like work than it has felt like you're sitting around a table with your friends, you're telling a great story together and you're just like, you know, you you turn off that computer and you walk away and you're just like, oh man, I feel refreshed. How has that been for you stepping into, you, uh, you start doing this thing that you love professionally how's that for you for balance? Like, are there, is there a thing that you would even say to some GMs out there? Like, yeah, maybe it's not going to be for you because maybe you're going to step into this and you'll start to lose the love of the game. Like, obviously you don't want to dissuade people, but I imagine there's a realistic element of that. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, hundred percent. There are some uh, GMs who are just not going to enjoy doing it professionally. And that's, that's hundred percent true. I think that, a lot of people who really benefit from running games on uh, SPG are people who have worked in a professional environment before and uh, they they know, understand the professional elements that can go into running your own business. Running a business is hard. So I don't shy away from telling people that. I am very direct when people ask me for like, 
any sort of advice or feedback. Generally, most of my feedback and advice like goes into like articles or like Twitter threads or, you know, my podcasts or anything like that, as opposed to like direct one on one, unless you hire me as a consultant, because I just don't have the time. But um, most people are really surprised that I'm like giving them direct feedback. I'm like, and you're 100% right, Mitch, like I'm, I'm going to tell people you shouldn't be a pro GM. Like if I show up to their game and like they just ain't running like things like they probably should or they're not caring as much or whatever. And I'm going to be honest, I have days like that too. I have days where I show up and I'm just, I just don't necessarily want to be at work. But that's not been true for any other job that I've ever had. So I don't, you know, I don't see that as like a negative. It's just a reality of life. You're going to have bad days. The difference is, I think, a lot of the time, and I've been very uh, fortunate for the community that I built up for this past year, they support me. And when I have a bad emotional day, I mean, I'm going to be real. I'm a trans woman on HRT. I have emotional days sometimes uh, because I spent my entire life not like processing my emotions. And now I have emotions big time on HRT. So sometimes I just have emotions where I'm just like, I can't run a game today. I'm too busy crying. (laughs) So I'll catch you next week. And um, yeah, and, you know, sometimes some of the players show up. I just just the other week we had some players who had some uh, who had some tragedy we, I canceled the game and we watched Netflix. Like, so some of this is more akin to running a, uh, a friendly local game store than any other uh, sort of business. Because when people show up, they're still paying to be there. They're like buying stuff, right? They're still like enjoying it. You just happen to own the place. And if they piss you off, then you can kick them out. <laughs> so like... You know what I mean? Like, so that that's a better way to look at it for most people, I think, is like, I own this friendly local game store, which is my Discord server. You're welcome to hang out. You can talk to me. We can be friends. However, I can't necessarily let you play for free unless you're one of my seat fillers, which I do for like my long term community members and stuff like that. And like there's other benefits um, that I generally recommend that GMs kind of put out there for their community um, if they're giving you back money or they're like on your Patreon or something. But yeah, it sometimes it's hard. I think for the most part, avoiding burnout is the most important thing. And I say that as someone who just like took a mini vacation uh, for the first time, like in a year, I took like four days off for Christmas. And like earlier this month, I took four days off and I worked all through 2022. I think altogether, though, it is better to scale up gradually than to sort of jump in and try to run 10 plus games right away. Uh, you need to sort of build up your tolerance, build up your endurance, build up games one at a time, really refine not only the game that you're running, because you might want to run the same campaign more than once and be able to u- reuse that prep material for more efficiency. But you want to refine your marketing copy so that you can bring in the type of player that is going to really enjoy this campaign. And that happens over time. That's why I ended up running like nine uh, campaigns of uh, Curse of Strahd, because Players really connected with me running Strahd because I ran like a, a Femme Strahd that wasn't ableist or racist. And they would come in, they really enjoyed it. And then I just, okay, well, that Strahd table filled. I guess I need to open up another Strahd campaign. Now I'm never running Strahd again. So, <laughs> but I'm, just, I'm like just starting to wrap them up. Uh, you know, I have, I have two within the next month that I'll wrap up and I've already wrapped up two. So I think just gradually building one or two new games a month if you're just starting out is probably the right pace because you're going to learn so much running one or two games and like you fill a table and then it falls apart and then you're like, okay, well, what happened? What could I have done better? 
uh, and then you try another table and then you try maybe a different campaign and you see if that works and you just kind of fiddle with it and you improve your marketing copy, you improve your process, you improve your session zero, you improve your skills as a GM and you work through that and you just build it up over time. I am an unusual case for pro GMing. When I started, there was some information uh, and that was one of the things that I wanted to address uh, because I felt like more people uh, should make more money in tabletop. But when I started last year in January, there wasn't really a lot of information available. Um, so when I went full time in March, that's where I started like running these ad copy workshops where I was helping other GMs refine their advertising copy because these people were like, how did you go full time in three months? And I was like, well, I just understand copywriting. So that's really what it was. And then I was running a product that people really wanted. They wanted Femstrad at the time. So, um, yeah. And now we're, we're at where we're at. I think most people will be pretty satisfied with, even if they're improving their quality of life at home by earning an additional ten dollars or $20,000 on SPG, that's totally doable. I'm kind of an unusual case. I earned, I think, 52000 on SPG in my first year. But that's like not the norm because I went a little hard, but... Well, like just even like as a, a GM that only runs home games uh, for my friends, I'm hearing you talk. And even though I asked the question, I know, Neil, you have another question, but uh, just, you know, even just hearing you talk, I'm like, well, there are days where I'm going to GM for my friends and I don't necessarily feel like I'm super in the mood to do it. And then I jump in and I have a good time. And there are times where I'm totally yeah. in the mood to do it. And then I jump in and it's not everything that I hoped it was going to be. And that's just the name of the game, right? It happens. And so to put that on a professional level, like, I mean, hey, at least you're walking away with the paycheck for it. So that's nice. <laughs> yeah, it is always nice to get paid. Yeah, it is always nice. I love that part. Yeah, the because as a person with two business degrees, the number of podcasts that I listen to that lean that direction uh, would probably be surprising to most of our listeners. But so much of this leans into that entrepreneurial um, advice columns and podcasts and approaches and things like that, because it, yeah, you're going to get knocked down. Like that is, that is the truth of what this is. Um, especially there's a, there's a learning curve and I feel like it can be steep because you're doing something you that feels wrong, but I think there there's just some hard truths about this process. You're going to do something that you've done potentially for decades that you think you can do in a different way. And that may or may not be true. And the long and the short of it is everyone has the potential to become a pro GM, but it's going to be work like they're because you're getting paid again, a living wage. So it's going to require work um, and consistent work because I never started a job that I was amazing at right out the gate. Right. Because that's not how I wasn't doing that job before having that job. That's how, you know, again, mm -hmm. that's how it works. So again, I really like the advice of starting slower because there really is so much to learn in that process rather than I could just imagine me like, yes, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to run seven strads. It's going to be great. I'm super burnt out. I hate everything about <laughs> this. Never again. Yeah, like that is absolutely someone's probably quite a few someone's stories yeah. um, that um, because it's like, oh, well, I run, you know, I run my home game, but I go to my um, uh, friendly local gaming store and I run it and then I run some one shots because people at work wanted it and. Um, you know, like my significant other has a group of people that are interested in Dungeons and Dragons. And so I tell them 
that you run it. And so now I've told them that you'll run a game for them. I'm pointing at myself, dear listeners, um, but which is totally fine. But the idea of then transitioning all of those into that transactional method is something so very different. Yeah, it's difficult to uh, sort of pinpoint what everybody's personal limits are. And that's really something that you have to find out on your own. That's why I give the general advice of one to two games a month. Some people can scale faster. When I uh, hit my mark of like earning as much doing pro GMing on the weekend as I did at my regular job, I quit my regular job that day. Don't do that. Um, (laughs) You should instead uh, save up some money so that when hard times hit, it's not like devastating to you. Because the reality of freelancing, any industry and especially pro GMing, is that you're going to have hills and valleys. And you're going to have times where I have times where I have 70 players. That means 70 people are paying me my rate, which right now is like 40 bucks a seat. And then sometimes I have only 50 or 40 players, depending on uh, what's going on seasonally, or if games fall apart. And then I have a couple of weeks where I'm trying to build another game up to uh, keep going. So that's just that's just life of being a freelancer. And uh, it is better to start gradually and do it gradually for a year before shifting into full time, in my opinion. It's not like it used to be on Start Playing Games where you just open a game and people join. You have to be good at advertising. You have to like refine your copy. You have to be a professional. And, and a lot of people who are not used to pivoting and being on your feet and understanding the ups and downs of freelancing um, are not going to be successful. Because if you get knocked down and you lose a couple of tables, well, like it's up to you to figure that out. Like Nobody's going to help you do that. You just got to do it. So... <laughs> In being prepared to pivot to a different style of campaign, being prepared to run a different game, that's all stuff that you need to figure out with your strategy. So the general advice that I give for most people that I think is applicable uh, in a useful way for people to think about is that when you're picking your strategy for like, what's my what's my winning horse? Like, what am I going to bet on? You need to pick something that you find to be fun and you're excited about because that excitement and that passion is really going to come through in the game. So if you're like, okay, well, everybody wants to play Curse of Strahd, I'll just run that. Do you even like Gothic Horror? If you don't, then you need to not run that game because like, you're not going to do a good job at it. You need to pick something that you love so that your love can just come through with the game and your passion. And you're going to provide things that other people can't. My friend Kenzie is the best Theros GM in the world because... She can, she's a a Greek mythology nerd and she grew up like being in and out of all of those uh, sorts of stories and being really well versed in it. And it really translates well to her being a professional GM um, and it's her most popular campaign style for that reason. So our most important question is where can people go online to see all the work that you're currently doing, you have done, and of course that you plan to do in the future? Well, uh, if people want to check me out, they want to listen to the podcast, which is full of advice and just special guests and things like that from people in the tabletop industry and other pro GMs, uh, they can go to dollarsanddragons.com. And that's going to be my newsletter podcast. And then uh, a a couple of links. Um, You can also check out vineyardrpg.com. We hit Kickstarter April 3rd, 2023, if you're listening to this uh, years down the road. Um, So it'll be out there. Uh, But yeah, you can go to vineyardrpg.com and it'll redirect you to wherever we're at currently. And yeah, if you enjoy all that, then I am on Patreon. But, uh, you know, that's for people who listen to every episode, I guess. It really helps me pay my editor. I appreciate being able to pay my editor. So 
Perfect. Well, thank you again for coming on, spending some time, sharing, yeah, sharing a ton of knowledge um, and hope, hopefully inspiring some new pro GMs out there. We just want to thank Friday again for coming on, sharing those bits of wisdom. Ah, bits is not enough. That absolute dearth of wisdom about the ins and outs and some of the ways that a person could become a pro GM. And as always, if you have anything to that you want to get a hold of us to tell us about. One of the best ways is to email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com and tell us whatever it is you want to. And of course, if you see fit, you can head over to Apple Podcast or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a rating and review because it always helps. And of course, you can try and find us on the social medias, whichever one we may be on today, tomorrow, or the next day. But right now you can find us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. And of course, you can look up the Dungeon Masters block on Facebook or Instagram. And as always, we are a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network, where you can check out other shows like Detentions and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons and Daughters, and more. But as always, thank you for spending some time listening to the Dungeon Masters block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the ego of everyone else at the table. I'm still DM Neil. Good night, good luck, and keep on Dungeon Mastering. Goodbye.